Most people mean well, but sometimes even the best intentions end up undermining the organization. In this episode, how to detect and eliminate organizational sabotage. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 260. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you to develop your leadership skills. And welcome back to the show if you are a regular listener. If you're listening for the first time, I think you're going to find today's conversation very interesting and how to think about building a more effectiveness in your organization and also rooting out the challenges that become struggles for many organizations, a lot of times without us even realizing it. And I've been looking forward to this interview today because when I told a couple of people about today's guests and the premise of the book, I remember one person just saying, wow, I have got to get my hands on that because it is such a unique way to look at how to become more effective in your organization. And I'm really glad to welcome today Bob Frisch and Carrie Green to the show. For over 30 years, Bob has worked with senior executive teams and boards on their most vital strategic and organizational challenges, both as a consultant and as a corporate executive. He's a leading strategic facilitator, having designed and conducted offsites in 15 countries with some of the largest multinationals all the way down to family businesses. And Carrie has over 20 years experience working with strategic and senior executives and boards on challenging and working through complex strategic issues. And he also has an expertise in strategy and workshop design and facilitation and leads efforts focusing on large-scale transformation and strategy programs. And both of them have been published in Harvard Business Review and are the co-authors of the book Simple Sabotage, a modern field guide for detecting and rooting out everyday behaviors that undermine your workforce. Gentlemen, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks very much. We also, by the way, have a, have a third co-author, Bob, uh, Rob Galford, we should mention. But, but yes, you have two-thirds of the team with you today. Hey, two-thirds is pretty good, right? So I'm really glad to welcome both of you. And thank you so much for your time today. And I was really captivated. One of our listeners had actually put your book on my radar screen. And when I heard the premise of the book, I was really captivated by how this came about. And I was wondering if you could share with our audience, where did the book come from and, and what's the genesis of the book? Oh, thanks, Dave. It's actually an amazing story. So in 1944, the OSS, which was the predecessor of today's CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, we were still very engaged in the uh, Second World War, and they published a book. And that book was called Simple Sabotage Field Manual. And it was a, a short book, and it was translated into a number of languages, and it was dropped behind enemy lines to help the resistance movement from behind Axis lines help to disrupt the war machine while the invasion of Europe took place. And it was basically a manual for how to foul up those occupied countries. And, and most of the stuff in the manual was, you know, you, you, put, you put sand in the, in the gas tank, or if you're a painter, 
on your way out of the factory every night, put a, an oily rag on a pile, and then when you have a big enough pile, one day have a buddy throw a cigarette and keep walking, and the plant burns down. I mean, really kind of monkey-wrenching, how to disrupt the war machine sort of stuff. So I, I happened to get my hands on a copy. It was declassified, and it was a PDF document. So I'm reading this thing, and there's one section, page 28, called General Rules for Interfering with Organizations in Production. And it was interesting. I work with organizations, Carrie and I, all the time. How do you disrupt an organization? How would you intentionally you know, muck things up to, to disrupt an organization and not get caught? Remember, saboteurs, a saboteur that gets caught is a, is a dead saboteur. You want something that, that you're, you know, there's no fingerprints on it. Yeah. So, so here's the kinds of stuff on the list. Insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Rule number three, when possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never less than five. <laughs> Nice. Number six, a refer matters back. Re refer back to matters decided in an earlier meeting and attempt to reopen the question or the advisability of that decision. So we took this list of these eight rules and we showed it to our friends and clients. Everybody laughs. They say, "That's my company today." Uh, I mean, that's the that's the environment I work in every day, guys. We say, "Well." If this is a list of things that you should do to intentionally destroy a company from inside, but they're behaviors that we all see around us every day, what's going on? Hopefully people aren't showing up every morning intentionally trying to destroy our workplaces. Why is it that these behaviors happen? And how do you, either as a manager or a colleague, how do you identify them, call them out, inoculate yourself against them, prevent them. If they're so insidious and so pervasive and so hard to root out, how do you actually deal with them? Because this is the sand that grinds down our machines, just like those saboteurs are supposed to grind down the Axis war machine in 1944. Yeah, it's such an interesting list because I had the almost the exact same reaction. I'm sure many of the people you showed this list to originally had I looked through this list and I'm like, not only do I see this in organizations a lot, but I know there's been many of things, these things that I've done and mostly not even thinking about it. Like, oh, this is, this is, these are the kinds of things that grind organizations to a halt. And we're not even sometimes aware that we're doing it as part of the organization. Well, let's look at sabotage by committee because more and more we're starting to see shared decision making and that's become a framework for organizations. And yet, it also it can be a big challenge, especially if it's not managed well. From the standpoint of how you're seeing it, what do you see in organizations that are struggling with this? So, first of all, I think every organization struggles with it because <laughs> committees are just a fact of life. You can call them task forces, initiative teams, but, but we live in a sea of committees, generally sucking up a tremendous amount of time over and above what people are supposed to be doing, you know, nine to five, their core job. So, oh, by the way, in, in addition to your full-time job, we want you to sit on these three task forces and four initiative teams and five committees. Tremendous time soak, tremendous amount of energy. So there's really three areas that we, we talk about in the book. One is making sure that a committee is appropriate. Now, again, you could be the person who forms the committee or you could be asked to be on a committee. 
but making sure that the right way to deal with the topic at hand is in fact through a committee, and trying to make sure in advance what is the job of the committee. Are you there to make a recommendation? Are you there to make a decision? Are you there to make a decision, but if somebody else doesn't like it, they can reverse your decision? So understanding at the beginning, what is it we've been chartered to do? What's the question on the table and what's the outcome that's being asked for? Because very often, if a, if a committee's there to make a recommendation, that's a very different result and a very different closure mechanism than the committee's here to make a decision. And if the committee is to make a decision, asking, in our case, what's the closure mechanism? If we have seven people here and we don't agree, what happens? Is there a tiebreaker? Does it go to somebody else? Does it, does it get kicked up a level? So, so what is it we're being asked to do? What's the nature of the, of the work product, of the outcome? And what happens if we can't get to that outcome? If we've been charged of making a decision and the seven people and four think one thing and three the other thing, what, what happens then? And asking these questions, not at the end, asking the questions at the beginning, making sure that as the committee is established, you understand what's the work you need to do, what's the outcome you have to reach, and what happens in the inability to come to a consensus around that outcome. So, so that's part number one, It's just making sure you have a clean charter and a clear set of, a clear path to completion. Number two is, the size of the committee. As you see, the rule says make it as big as possible. Many people, many of your listeners have used various kinds of decision-making rules, whether it's rapids or racy, whatever it is, who's responsible, accountable, consulted before, informed after. There's a lot of different ways to think about who should be on a committee. Very, very often committees are too large because, well, Legal stuff might come up. Let's put somebody from legal on the committee. Oh, we might need some numbers crunch. We'll put somebody from finance. Oh, there might be people aspects. HR needs representation. All of a sudden, you have 17 people in the room. So what we find is keeping a small core committee and saying, look, if we're going to make any major decisions that involve legal or financial or HR, we will go to you before we make any major decisions. You'll be consulted before, but there's no need to have a full-time person on the committee to be there in case a question comes up. So really keeping it a working group and another periphery of people around the committee that can be brought in who are, say, subject matter experts. And then number three is just making sure that there's an agenda, the, the committee meetings are structured, we're not flailing around the same question over and over, making sure the conversation has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Many of your listeners will know that many conversations in business have a middle. You jump in, you turn it around, you jump out, no closure. Making sure the committee's work has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Those three things we think are, are important factors in helping prevent committees being quicksand in organizations. And, and Dave, one of the things that uh, we can talk about is since the book was published, We've collected data, we've done some surveys. I think we have about 250 to 300 respondents now from all nonprofits, for profits, mid level executives, senior executives. And, and the, the questions that we ask 
that are relevant here are to what extent do each of these sabotage techniques take place in your organization? In the case of committees, 55% said, when possible, referring all matters to committees happens frequently or constantly in my organization. Now, all of the techniques were 50% or more, but the committee one in particular is quite prevalent. Yeah, and that's the one that really stuck out for me right away of thinking about just my work and work with some current client organizations too. And uh, I love the three points, and those just seem so sensible. And yet, so many organizations don't do those things, or they give lip service to them, but they don't really follow through. I'm curious from both of you, what's been your experience of your clients as you've worked with them who've been able to make that shift and do those three things, if not all the time, while at least most of the time get better at doing that. What have they done from a leadership standpoint that's helped the leader or the committee members to really start to change their behaviors? Well, I'll offer one up. I think very often when some when somebody's put in charge of a committee, the nature of that accountability is unclear. So you can say, well, well, Mary, you're going to lead this committee. Well, sometimes for all, no leader appointed. That's a, that's a certain recipe for nothing to happen. But even if a leader's appointed, they say, Mary, you know, we're going to ask these six people to work with you. Go put together a committee, and we want you guys to do that. The question of what has Mary been delegated with is almost always left very vague. Does that mean that Mary should talk to the people, solicit their input, and it's Mary's decision? Does that mean, on the other end of the spectrum, marries some kind of coordinator where she gets the meeting room and buys the donuts and makes sure the agenda is distributed, but she has the same vote as everybody else? Or does it mean that if the group goes along and they, they, they hit a log jam and, and there's different opinions and they can't resolve it, Mary's a tiebreaker? So does it mean that she's been handed the problem and she can use the committee to her whatever dirt said she wants? On the other end, she's a coordinator. In the middle, she's a tiebreaker. What we find most effective is once you are sure that committees are clear in their charter and have a clear outcome, the person that the committee's been given to, making clear what their role is and making it clear to the other members of the committee is of paramount importance. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's one thing that isn't happening today, it's that A, well, two things. Too many things go to committee, and then the person who's put in charge of the committee, their authority is not defined in either one of those directions. And I think those are pathological behaviors. So one of the things that, from a leadership standpoint, we should all be thinking about, if we're the one that's maybe putting together the strategy for the committee or even forming the committee, we want to be clear on the leader's role of that committee if we're the one that's that's, uh, maybe leading the organization and is deciding on that. And then if we're the person who's been put in charge of a committee, we should also look for that opportunity if it's not clear what our charter is and our role and um, and our scope of responsibility that we should in in an appropriate and professional way, but push back a little bit and to say, hey, you know, I I don't I don't have a clear sense of what this is, and I don't think the rest of the committee does. Can we make that clear up front? Well, I don't think asking for clarity is pushback. So I think if I was either put in charge of committee or being asked to serve in a committee, to say, let me understand, are we making a recommendation or are we being asked to make a decision? Okay. If we can't come to closure, let's say the seven of us don't come to consensus. What happens then? Does it get put off to somebody else? Do we have a vote? 
Mary's in charge of the committee. Is she a tiebreaker? Is it Mary's decision? Is she kind of a coordinator? I just want Mary to know and the rest of us to know what is Mary's role. And, and so I think asking those questions, again, part of what we need to do here, part of what the book's about is changing cultures. Once you make it the norm that those questions are the natural questions that are asked every time a committee is formed, then all of a sudden things start changing very quickly. So the first few times, yes, a little uncomfortable. Once somebody says, gee, I read this great book, they talk about sabotage by committee. Here's the things these guys talk about. We should start doing that. And you get permission to have the conversation. Then, then actually getting things right and getting things working, I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I'm saying it's much easier. I love it. It's such an important framework for us to think of if, if we are in the environment where we're, we're utilizing committees or part of a committee. Speaking of committees, one of the other ones that sticks out for me on the list is sabotage by haggling. And you further go on to clarify that it's haggling over the precise wording of communications. Tell me more about the original, what was in the manual, and then how, does, how do you see this showing up in organizations today? So the actual wording in the manual is along the lines, David, what you said, which is haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, resolutions. And you know, to a large extent, you know, if you think about, especially in today's world, if you think about you know, in the world of social media, for example, the number of opportunities, organizations, small, medium, large, doesn't matter, the number of opportunities that exist could be a tweet, could be a Facebook post, could be a memo, could be a letter to a customer to share it, whatever it might be, the number of communications, especially today relative to back in 1944, that, it, that, are, that exist for someone to haggle over is exponentially greater. And oftentimes, you know, what, what we see is we talk in the books about three different types of, of saboteurs when it comes to haggling. And we've all been there, right? We're in a room, potentially, we're talking about a piece of communication. And, you know, there's one that we call the defender, which is someone that just is very passionate about a point, and they just won't give it up. Even when the group clearly disagrees and is ready to move on, there's always that, you know, oftentimes there's one person that really, really just keeps coming back to that point and tries and tries again. And, and that's okay for a period of time, but then it crosses the line, and it's just, it's sabotaging the conversation, sabotaging your ability to move forward. Then there's, you know, the wordsmith, the person that always has to tweak and, and modify a document or a memo, whatever it might be. And then there's just the person that's always sitting there paying attention to grammar. And all these things are really valuable, you know, until they kind of get to a point where, you know, they're keeping, keeping the conversation or the communication from moving forward. And at the root of this, and you know, in many cases, is, is the people spend a lot of time crafting these communications, but they don't step back and say, what's my plan to actually go from A to Z here? So I'm going, in some cases, and, and the plan, by the way, isn't the same as you, as you can imagine for all these, right? Some of these do, in fact, require a lot of review, a lot of eyes on them, whereas others don't necessarily need that. But stepping back and saying, what's the plan, and being clear about the process you're going to go through, develop, review, and approve any communications that are being created, 
including, by the way, who should be involved and what you need from those people. And, you know, when, and when you ask people to give you feedback, you know, the, the question that we often hear is, you know, what feedback do you have, which is the worst possible question you could ask because it immediately opens the floodgates to getting anything and everything from people in the room. And those saboteurs that I just described come out in droves, you know, in, in when that question is asked, as opposed to asking a much more specific question about something that you really either yourself have a question about or you really think is key that you get feedback on from that particular particular group. And the third thing, and actually along the lines of very similar to the committee conversation we just had, is what's the path to closure? So oftentimes, especially when it's a relatively high stakes piece of communication, who has the final call? So in you know in the newspaper world, you know, there's a reason why, you know, there's an editor, there's a, you know, a, there's a right, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy, if you will, but you know if there's a disagreement over something, you know in that case who has the final call. In companies, in groups and teams, that's not always clearly defined, mm. especially when in communication is not necessarily perhaps a defined group that needs to review something. So you really need to be thoughtful about, you know, the process, who you're going to get feedback from, and, you know, how ultimately you're going to get closure. And importantly, you know, if, if you have an opportunity, if you're the one crafting the communication, you know, find a person or two or three that may not necessarily have a stake in the outcome that, that can review it for you that you trust that before it actually goes beyond that because they'll oftentimes really help in terms of your ability to, you know, to bypass a lot of the trouble that sometimes we've seen. I think like both of you, I've been involved in, in many meetings over the years where things like we've just described have happened, and uh, people generally mean well, and yet it just can become overwhelming. I think I, I think it was um, a video by Dan Heath I saw a few years ago that said something to the effect of when you get a group of people working on a, on a mission statement or a vision statement, there's just a tendency for all of a sudden everyone in the room to want to become a ninth grade English teacher and, and uh, immediately exactly. like start giving tons of feedback and should we do this and add in this word. And, and so it sounds like one of the big things we can do is just be a lot more specific about the feedback we're asking for each person. And like you said, have someone who is the final decision point on you know, if there's a disagreement, what are we, what are we actually going to do? Yeah, and, and all these techniques, you know, they, they were originally back in 1944, the manual was written, as Bob said earlier, to perform these acts intentionally. The vast majority of the times that things, that all of these techniques, especially when it comes to haggling, for example, you know, when, when people actually cross the line and become a saboteur, they're not doing it with great intention. You know, it's not, we're not suggesting that you got enemies walking the halls, you know, of your organization looking for ways to sabotage, you know, your decision making or your communication process, whatever it might be. Most of these times, these things, when they happen, as you said, people feel like they're performing a valuable service, they're doing the right thing. And at some point, in many cases, unwittingly, they cross the line where it becomes unproductive. And, and that's, that's why these things are so damaging, you know, on a cumulative basis, especially when it comes to things like haggling. One of the things we find, and we talk about in the book a lot, is, you know, most of these are excesses of something positive. So committees are good. 
you get input, you get different opinions, you get you know multiple views. Um, being precise on wording, nothing wrong with that. You don't want to spend typos and ungrammatical memos going out. I mean, the problem is the saboteur hides behind in, in excess of something which done in moderation is usually a good behavior. That's why it's insidious. Remember, a dead saboteur is a bad saboteur. So they wanted to create rules of if somebody's caught, if somebody says, Fred, you seem very, very precise. You know, you spend a lot of time in meetings worrying about punctuation and grammar. He said, well, you know, something went out three, you know, a year or two ago, and our customers thought we were, you know, illiterate, you know, country bumpkins. So I'm just trying to keep that from happening again. What's the problem? So this plausible deniability makes it a good thing for in 44 saboteur, but in our day, a hard thing to call people on and prevent against because it's an easy defense. What's wrong with having a committee look at it? What's wrong with having pre precise wording? So that's why this insidious nature is something we really felt strongly we had to keep talking about in the book because it's what makes it such a challenge. Mm. But it is doesn't mean it's not addressable. Yeah, well, and it reminds me of a lesson I learned from a mentor a long time ago that his 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 thought was any strength overused eventually becomes a liability for yourself and for the organization. And that, that very much resonates with this list too, that these start off as in most organizations and with most people as really positive things. But like you were saying, as soon as we start to overuse it, then that's where it crosses the line to not being helpful for the organization. I don't think we can leave this conversation without talking about sabotage by carbon copy. <laughs> it's just, it's so prevalent. And, and, and actually, I'm in the midst of this right now with an organization I'm working with um, this week. There's been hundreds of emails on something that is really, for most of the people on it, are not something that they can do anything about. And I, I find myself often in conversations on email, removing people out of the CC list before I send or add to. And and so I'm wondering, what do you see with organizations first? Like, how do you even get an awareness of this and then what to do about it? Because it's so hard to control what people do in their email client. Well, it, it, it's interesting. So we've had an opportunity since the book to do several talks on the topic or even half-day workshops for organizations once they've read the book and they want their top top executives, top leaders to come talk, sit down and talk through you know, some of these things. And one of the things that we often do is, is survey them in advance because you can't talk about all eight and three or four hours in detail. And, and what's amazing is the number of times this one in particular for the top people in an organization rises to the top. And so just to give an example, we have the top 40 executives of a leading airline you know, in the room. We polled them in advance. 90% of folks in the room actually said the CC everyone occurs frequently or constantly. And when we probed what was really going on there, it was a mix of just you know, the sheer number of emails. Because remember, every time you receive one, you often send one, right, or vice versa. And just the fact that they, you know, when they, when they step back and we then in the room poll people and ask the question, you know, how many of those are directly sent to you versus CC'd? You know, and the average response we typically get for, you know, leaders and organizations is less than half are sent to me directly. Most of them are CC'd. And so the combination of 
on Bean CC with just the sheer volume. And, and by the way, people are being are CCing them because they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to keep them informed, trying to stay visible. But you know, as we talk about in the book, you know, the, the, what's really going on is I've I've drafted an email. I'm sending it to a few people that I know it needs to get sent to, and then I'm going to copy five or ten or fifteen other people so they'll be they'll be informed of what's going on. And what that means is I've now done my job. I've done my duty. So I'm off the hook because I've now informed everyone that I think needs to be informed. And the net effect of that is, you know, people on the receiving end get a bunch of emails they really don't need. And just the volume is is really dramatic for senior people in organizations. I mean the numbers that we've seen just in these workshops and surveys are hundreds and hundreds of emails and people there's plenty of data out there that shows that on average, senior leaders spend 30, at least 30% of their day on email. And you know, my question, my response to that is, name one other task, one singular task that leaders spend as much time on. Mm. This isn't one. It's not even close. Yeah, and so it's a it's a huge it's a huge challenge. It's a huge time investment for leaders, and there's probably data on all sides that would argue the the value of that time investment on a daily basis. But I I am curious, what is something you found that as you've had those conversations and done some of those workshops that has been a shift point of getting an organization to think a little bit smarter about how to use the CC? Are there, is there a practice you found that's really helpful or at least gets people behaving a little differently on how they think about that? Well, I think, first of all, what was, what's been really interesting when we've done these workshops is I, I've actually made the observation, isn't it funny that we've got the top 30, 40 people in the room talking for the last hour about email, right? So number one is just like a lot of things in life, acknowledging it's a problem, right? It was really critical for, for these teams. And then, you know, practically speaking, here's some things that, that I think we've seen you know, le- leaders do. Some are individual things, and then some are more organization or team-wide things. You know, just like, just like in you know, your, your personal life, take yourself, proactively take yourself off as many distribution lists as possible. And don't be afraid to do that because there are some regular things that might come out. You, you just don't need all those. So be proactive in doing that. And the second thing is one of the things with, you know, with email and texting, et cetera, is that oftentimes people forget that the best thing they, that to do is actually to pick up the phone or walk down the hall. And so be proactive in terms of doing that, but also telling people to personally inform you of something versus you know, putting it in an email. And then importantly, one the third thing that we've seen work quite well is use the subject line in email really effectively. And so, you know, there's some practical things you can do to, to really get a better handle, you know, on the number of emails and at the end of the day, making them more effective. It's really a problem, not only in terms of the time, but also in terms of the the implications. Let me give you an example. When we were writing the book, an incident came up with this thing with the Murdoch family, and uh, and 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 did 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 the publisher of a of a paper in England know that somebody was busting into the voicemail boxes of the royal family? Oh yes, big, I remember this. Big scandal. So so they got Murdoch 
Jr., Murdoch the son, on the stand, and they said, well, you were informed about this. He said, no, I wasn't. They said, yes. In this email, here in paragraph four, there's this sentence, and you opened that email at 12.03 on a Saturday. And he said, I open a lot of emails. I happen to have something in the first paragraph that caught my eye, right? I actually responded to that person. I didn't read down four paragraphs. So the question is, was he informed? So again, CC everyone in order to inform no one. Sometimes somebody will say, look at my own, you know, our own firm here, right? Somebody say, oh, I, I told you about that. What do you mean? Oh, I sent you an email two weeks ago. It was, you know, it was in paragraph three. Well, that's not informing me. Like, that's not telling me. So I think sometimes people making it clear, I get hundreds of emails a day. PCing me along with 150 other people is not informing me. If you want to inform me, here's how you inform me. Here's how you will know that I know. But don't assume that because you copied me on an email that I read it and understood it and I'm informed. Do not make that assumption. It's an unfair assumption. And I think if people were candid with each other and said that, then you would have mechanisms for people to either say, pay attention to this, or Bob, see paragraph three, or immediate action required. But something in the headline, something to indicate, I need you to focus on this one because I realize how much of this just flows water under the bridge every single day for, every, for all of us. Yeah, and I I love that advice, Bob. And I it reminds me of I know we have a member of our mastermind who's very clear with his team on exactly how emails should be structured, what means what's informing him, what's not. And I, I love the way of looking at that proactively from a standpoint of expectation setting on how communication works over email, as opposed to what I think happens in most organizations of just kind of, you know, whatever, <laughs> anything flies as far as how you want to structure your communications. And so I think it's just a really smart way to be thinking about it. And if you do that, you're you're doing a lot better than most leaders are. Uh, gentlemen, I am so grateful for your work on this book. And I hope if people have found value in a couple of the rules we've talked through here today, I, I hope they'll check out even more because there's a lot more in the book, obviously, we're not going through today. I really appreciate your perspective on this and also of taking something from the history books, literally, and bringing it into how we can be more effective in organizations today. So thank you so much for that perspective. Thank you. It's, uh, it's simple sabotage. It was a lot of fun to write. We're told it's a lot of fun to read. And uh, more importantly, it's a nice thing to share with your colleagues because, as we say, it gives you permission to have a conversation. Yeah. It gives you an ability to raise certain issues that are hard to raise. But if you have this kind of impartial third-party book, all of a sudden people are having conversations they weren't having before. And if we tried to accomplish one thing right in the book, it was to enable people to have the conversations and talk to their colleagues about these things to try to get them out of their organization and get on with business. Bob Frisch and Carrie Green are co-authors with Robert Galford of the book Simple Sabotage, a modern field guide for detecting and rooting out everyday behaviors that undermine your workforce. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. Are you getting our weekly show notes in your inbox on Wednesday? If you're not, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to the weekly leadership guide. It always has the links for the show notes of everything we've mentioned in the episode 
in that weekly guide, along with a bunch of other resources, articles, podcasts, books, things that I have been discovering that I think will help you in your leadership development. That comes every Wednesday. And if you'd like to be a part of it, just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and you'll be sure to get everything in your inbox on Wednesdays. And as a thank you, when you join for the first time, you will get my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. It's a great starting point for your leadership development. If you're just tuning in at the beginning here and starting to think about what are some things you can do to continue to enhance your development, that's a great start. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is the best way to do that. And for those of you whose today's topic very much resonated with, I would encourage you to go back and check out three additional episodes that also are related to this topic. One of them is episode number 74, The Importance of Communication in a Family Business. And that is a situation that I find that oftentimes good intentions result in sometimes some difficult things to navigate, particularly in a family business. And if you work in a family business or lead a family business and you have not heard episode 74, uh, my friend Joanne Norton was on that show and she only works with companies who are in family businesses and helping leaders to put strategies together to improve communication and family dynamics. It is a powerful episode. So again, that's episode 74. Also helpful to you potentially is episode 144, how we do things around here to get results. Kent Rhodes and I talked about organizational culture, which always, I shouldn't say always, but almost always plays a role when we're talking about things happening like sabotage. Episode 144 is a great listen if that's something you're thinking about. And then finally, episode 210 that aired last year was with Sharon Bar-David and her book, Trust Your Canary. That episode was titled How to Tame Workplace Incivility, a very closely related topic to this. It generated a ton of discussion from folks in the community and in our mastermind at the time it aired. Again, that's episode 210. And to get to any of those episodes, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number that'll take you there. And of course, if you use iTunes or Stitcher, you can find the full catalog on there as well. And I encourage you to continue your listening. Even in the back catalog, it'll support you in your ongoing development as a leader. And speaking of your ongoing development, next episode, Bonnie and I are returning for the monthly question and answer show. It will be the first Monday of the month and we turn over the first Monday of the month to you and your questions. And so if you are wondering about something related to leadership, submit your question for consideration either for next week's show or for the first Q&A show, uh, the first Monday of a future month. And you can do that by going to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. You can submit your question either by audio or by email, whatever is easiest for you. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to talking with you and Bonnie next Monday. Take care.